In January of 1994, two engineering students, David Philo and Jerry Yang, created a website named Jerry and David's Guide to the World Wide Web, which served as a catalog of other useful websites. Just one year later, the popular site had over 1 million hits, David and Jerry bought a new domain name, and in March of 1995, incorporated themselves as Yahoo. Over the next five years, Yahoo rode the growth of the internet and hit their peak in early 2000 during the height of the dot-com bubble, but then hit their all-time low just a year later, after the bubble burst. Today is January 17th, 2016, and you're listening to Episode 4, Small Shop Design, Part 2. Hey everybody, welcome back to InfoTrek. I'm back with Derek and Mike, and uh, we have some news items to go over this week. First thing on the ticket here is the round one sale for Yahoo. The deadline for offers is due in tomorrow. Looks like the end of an era for uh, the internet. Yahoo's been around for quite a long time, as you heard in the intro. Uh, Derek, what do you think of this? It's uh, interesting, right? It's been a, a <laughs> Yahoo's been around for a very long time. Um, they've made some interesting acquisitions recently. I think what one was Tumblr and whatnot. So, um, you know, I think the sale isn't for all the business. It's just for kind of their core internet side of it. But um, you know, me personally, you know, from like a Yahoo search perspective, I don't think I use it, and I can tell you last time I I logged in anything Yahoo other than Yahoo Finance, uh, to be yeah, honest. So. You know, I think Google and Bing kind of run the show on that. And, you know, there's been a lot of CIO turnover over there to kind of turn things around. But it sounds like there's uh, still a lot of uh, turmoil over there, right? So it's, uh, it's kind of a sad day, right? I mean, Yahoo's been around for a long time. They were kind of one of the first dot-coms and one of the big boys. And they're slowly, you know, losing their, their, their foothold there. Yeah, yeah. From what I read, it sounds like the uh, some activist investors are forcing the sale and they really didn't want to do it. But... Uh, the the vast majority of their worth is actually not up for sale. It's their uh, their st- it's their ownership of uh, some of the companies or a, a few e commerce companies in Japan and China. Um, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess I really didn't even know that there was anything to buy at this point. So uh, to me, yeah. I, this is this is not exciting news. I, I think it's somebody's going <laughs> to buy it and then they'll do nothing with it because even the people that work there, namely the CEO, don't understand what, what it is that they do. And why do they own parts of Alibaba, a Chinese online retailer? Like that just doesn't make sense. Do they have a business plan? Like what are they doing? Yeah. I'll put my offer in yeah. for a thousand bucks. <laughs> See if they take it. Why not? Uh, better get it in by tomorrow. Next up here is um, an outage for the uh, Google Compute Engine last Monday, I think on the 11th. Uh, looks like they had some kind of some kind of major failure in their automation engine that ended up pulling all their IP routes for the Compute Engine out of the BGP table on the internet. It cascaded across all of their data centers. Kind of a sad day for everybody out there that is a big uh, a big fan of automation. Mike, what do you think? I think this is a perfect example of um, you know one of the things that we cautioned against for our, our newbie programmers episode where we said you know you can do a lot of great things with automation but you can also break a lot of stuff all at once with automation right this is a, other this people's is a pri- stuff prime example of that um, you know but generally speaking I mean it's not a surprise I mean AWS has gone down Microsoft Azure has gone down because of certificate issues before I mean. 
these are new things, right? These clouds and they're running at such scale, like unprecedented scale that, you know, things are going to go wrong. I think that's just one of the realities that everybody has to sort of live with when you're, when you have stuff in the cloud. So, I mean, I think an hour of downtime is, uh, is not unreasonable given what happened. I think they recovered pretty quickly. So, you know, yeah, you know, just write good code. <laughs> that's what it yeah, comes down yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Big time. Yeah. It was, uh, it, I, I read through their report and, or at least part of it, and it sounded like it was uh, it was some bug in a uh, in like a sanity check feature of their automation software. But yeah, like you said, you can you can do a lot of stuff quickly, but you can break a lot of things quickly. And this is just a uh, this is just an incident of that happening. Derek, what do you think? The almighty cloud, right? Um, nothing is immune to uh, BGP, right? I mean, as we all know, <laughs> BGP pretty much runs the internet, so. Uh, you know, when you start pulling routes out and uh, the software decides, oh, well, this the Sandy check failed, let me go ahead and remove all the routes, you know, essentially doing the infamous clear IP BGP star, uh, yeah, bad <laughs> things are going to happen. So um, it, it's still interesting though, right? I mean, for as big as they are, it only affected, I think, their computing engine. Um, and to only be down for an hour, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's still pretty impressive, right? I mean, if you look at the track record of most probably enterprises and smaller mid-market companies, they have way more downtime than that, you know, I would say in, in a year or so. Um, but, you know, to everybody's point, it still proves that, you know, software isn't uh, as smart as it can be. It still has some ways to go. And, you know, obviously bugs and defects are going to be an ongoing issue and become more relevant. So um, it just proves that, you know, the routing, core routing of your your cloud, whether it's private or, or public, is still, you know, one of the most important things to make sure that is working flawlessly. Next up here, it looks like QCT, and uh, which is a, uh, a subdivision of Quanta Quantum Cloud Technology, is partnering up with Red Hat, and uh, looks like they're coming up with something that will compete with the VBlock and FlexPods of the world. Looks like they're coming up with the pre-built. Pre-designed converged infrastructure, all based on OpenStack, also with Quanta QCT hardware and Red Hat software. And it looks like they're going to go up and compete against VCE and uh, Cisco and NetApp with their VBlock and their FlexPod designs. Derek, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting because you have now kind of the software side wanting to partner up with the white box side to build a box that competes against, you know, traditional larger manufacturers um, when generally they're the ones telling you <laughs> to kind of stay away from those and stay open source, right? So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's not like it's going to be most likely easy to probably deploy. Um, I, I know the OpenStack, you know, changes rapidly. So um, I have a feeling it's, it could be one of those situations where once you have it in, um, you know, it changes. And then the other thing that'll be interesting is who are you going to call, right? And the, the motto of Ghostbusters, when something goes down, um, one of the nice <laughs> things about more of an integrated solution is you kind of have that one touch to call, um, one throat to choke, right? So in this case, you know, I can kind of see the software pointing at the hardware manufacturer and vice versa. So you can get into some probably interesting conversations about who, who, who do you blame when stuff doesn't work? Um, but I mean, overall, you know, we'll see how this whole thing plans out. Yeah, I'm I'm optimistic. I'm excited to what it could bring. Um, I, I really like the idea of running some open source software on white box hardware. But I agree. I mean, I do agree. It uh, it it can be difficult when people are you know your vendors are pointing fingers at each other, and um, you don't have one. 
you don't have, like you said, one throat to choke or one, one person to call, one phone number to call and, and get tech support. Mike, I think you have some pessimistic views on this. <laughs> I do. So uh, I, I guess, first of all, I, I don't get it. Maybe I'm slow. I mean, I am slow, so well, let's be clear. Uh, but maybe, I, uh, you know, there's some, some value play that I'm just not understanding because, I mean, if I go out and talk about convergent infrastructure with somebody, it's really about I can support this whole stack of, of stuff really efficiently because every one of them is built the same way. And I already know what it's supposed to do and what it's not supposed to do. And I have all this magic software on top of it that is supposed to, you know, give me all the hardware vitals and do all these things so that I can support it from a single place. But I've now taken, you know, what Red Hat's model for support of the software and I've done something that seems counterintuitive for someone who supports, uh, you know, the open compute project and saying that. I'm using any hardware, any way I want. You know, it's it's all standards, interchangeable stuff. And I'm now saying, hey, you should use it in exactly this way uh, because I, I can support it. Um, it just seems like they're just another commercial vendor at this point, except they're, you know, they're trying to gain popularity or backing because they're part of an open source project. It, it just makes no sense to me. Well, so like, v, so like the V block, right? VCE subsidiary of EMC, right? If you have if you have trouble with your V block, you can call them up, get support from them. Um, now, I mean, you do have different vendors, uh, hardware and software in there. You have VMware, you have you know EMC, um, you know whatever type of storage that they have, and their and their hyper uh, their hyper converged software that they put on the platform. And then you have Cisco UCS, but but. It's all built by one company, and it's a, some subsidiary of of um, of one of them, right? And then Flexbot, I think the same kind of thing. Um, they haven't announced that that would be the case, but yeah. So there's there's a couple of different things there, right? Like uh, in the v, in the case of VCE, that was actually a joint venture between um, VMware, Cisco, and EMC, hence the name. Uh, so they maintain their own support staff that's actually supposed to know all three product sets. And their value really is that they can support the entire product set from their frontline support personnel. And they have things like, you know, dial home that when something's failing like a drive or something else that they actually get alerted proactively and they can contact you rather than you contacting them. And you pay a premium for that, right? FlexPod's a little bit different. Um, it's more of, you know, what a lot of people argue is a reference or, or specs-based infrastructure. You still buy it uh, more easily because it's, you know, there are simplified SKUs for it for ordering from Cisco. And Cisco does take the first call on all of it. But ultimately, if there's a problem with the NetApp array that's in the FlexPod, they're going to call NetApp and get that tech on the phone. But Cisco's going to take the frontline call for all of that stuff. So the value of converged infrastructure is really a couple of things. But the primary one is the single line of support. And that I can get you know the support top to bottom. And unless Red Hat's going to su start supporting the software, it starts to look a lot more like the reference architecture model that we see from EMC specs or that we see from you know, really what is the flex pod today, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I can almost kind of see it kind of similar to, you know, back in the day when you had checkpoint hardware firewalls and like, or I'm sorry, like checkpoint software running on like Nokia hardware, which is a very supportive platform, but you can still get, do a lot of finger pointing when one thing didn't work. And ultimately, you know, it, it basically just causes frustration for the customer, which in this case is like the worst thing you can imagine. So you know, hopefully, you know, that that doesn't turn out for something like this, but you're right. They need, definitely need to kind of have the support model really ironed out, 
um, you know, or or is it, or are they going to say, hey, call your vendor who put it in, right? So uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing too is that this Quanta, right, or, or QPC or whatever, uh, QCP, QCT, QCT. Thank you. Uh, so QCT is really only selling to cloud providers right now, right? I mean, the Open Compute Project is not really relevant in the enterprise space today. Not that it's not applicable. I don't think it, it just doesn't have any traction, right? So when you talk about, hey, am I going to buy this stack of stuff and put it in my data center, I'm, I'm assuming they're going after the enterprise market. No one really knows in that space what the support looks like for the hardware, even if they're, you know, if the support model is split, like Red Hat's doing the software, they're doing the hardware. I have to imagine that their customers today that are running at scale, like potentially Google or Microsoft or anybody else that they're selling to you is really providing 90% of their own support. And they're really just handling hardware failures and RMAs. Um, so I, I don't know what that looks like for an enterprise customer from the standpoint of the thoroughness of the support or, or really being able to, to buy into, you know, getting whatever they're going to get from them. Awesome, guys. Good opinion. Let's go ahead and jump into uh, to our topic for the day. We're doing the second part of small shop, shop design. Our first uh, our first point today is compute. So, Stephen, what do you typically do as far as compute design for a small shop? Do you use virtualized machines? Do you use pizza boxes running you know native operating systems on there? How do you go about it? So we use uh, virtualized machines for the most part. We have. Hyper-V clusters, Hyper-V standalone servers, and VMware as well, but primarily Hyper-V simply because the licensing that's already built into Windows 2012 R2U in 2008, as far as the ability of a, a single standard license, you can virtualize um, twice, and we can get a little bit more technical than that, but for the most part, you can take a, a physical license and turn it into two um, virtualized licenses, Whereas with VMware, you're going to need to buy that licensing on top of it. That all to say, sometimes it makes sense to go with VMware because there are some awesome features that it provides that Hyper-V doesn't come close to touching. Yeah, from my experience, it's been that uh, small shops really do not like to pay for software, especially when it doesn't come with, you know, some kind of physical benefit as far as hardware goes they you know buying software on top of software like buying you know hypervisor software for for vmware or something like that is not something that uh small business owners really like to do derek and mike what do you guys typically see yeah i think from what i've seen you know it kind of depends too on like the it admin right sometimes they have gone through a vmware course so they're kind of familiar with it they talk their boss into spending the money to go vmware they stick with it it's easy to find support for you know blogs things like that and on the other hand like you guys were saying earlier is sometimes it's all about the cost right so where the hyper v comes in extremely cheap or almost you know i don't want to say free but when you when you kind of compare it it becomes really price competitive so sometimes they go by yeah, you're gonna route. buy windows anyway right right so i would say it kind of depends like who's running the show and how much leeway the it guy has and what he's comfortable with but you know generally speaking for the most part benefit wise they're going to be pretty pretty close to the same features if you will for like a small business or what they're going to use it for 
Yeah, and I think, you know, when you see some small shops that I've run into before, they, they usually try and get a really seasoned IT guy, right, that may not have worked at necessarily small shops his whole career. So he may have a better background in VMware, like Derek was saying, than he may have in Hyper-V. And I guess it just comes down to, to what you're able to administer efficiently. Um, or if you're not, you know, if you're partnered with someone like Steven's company, what they're able to, to administer efficiently. I guess for me, an important factor is just, pick a strategy and stick to it, right? And uh, make sure you, you go through the, the exercise of understanding whether the apps that you need to run are supported on Hyper-V or, you know, if you're using Zen or some other flavor because it's more cost-effective uh, for a hypervisor. Even KVM at this point is becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, just make sure that, you know, whatever you need to run uh, will we'll actually run on it so that you've got one consistent environment and you don't have to have multiple skill sets because, Ultimately, that's going to cause you downtime if your administrator is not familiar with it and you're not going to understand how your licensing and support works across the board. It's going to get messy at some point, whether you think it's a big deal to add that second sort of hypervisor platform in there or not. Yeah. So how often do any of you guys see free hypervisors like KVM running in a small business? Do you guys see it very often? I mean, you you made the point earlier that, that, that people don't like to pay for software, right? So it's I always right. tend to see it more there than anywhere else because it's like, well, I just stood up this thing because I didn't have budget and somebody said no to my purchase request, so I needed to get it done. So I just sort of installed this thing. I don't know a whole lot about it. Seems to run okay. I'm just going to leave it alone and, you know cross my fingers. Steven, what about you? Yeah, I don't see KVM much, but I do. Uh, I see it from, from time to time and in, in the same um, scenarios Mike just mentioned. And, and Hyper-V absolutely throughout the small businesses that we work with, it's always the choice because what you already said, John, it's it's more cost effective and small businesses want to to save money wherever they can. Very cool. So what about storage? So I've seen quite a few small businesses that'll, you know, these are either designate like a workstation or a, a small server as like a network attached storage. But what about like actual shared storage for virtualized clusters or things like that? Steven, do you see those very often or do people usually run local storage on their boxes? Well, as we've continued to grow, even from just myself and now with, you know, a handful of employees and subcontractors, and as we develop the businesses we work with, we, we've we been pushing, believe it or not, free NAS to a lot of our customers or even any, um, we'll run it on Solaris, we'll run it on FreeBSD, but any ZFS-based file system, um, simply uh, for the same reason we talked about Hyper-V and KVM, to save money. But um, now it's been several yeah. years, and it's we've had very, very good success. We've had virtually no downtime. We, we've never had a box just crash and lose everyone's data. But at the same time, you don't have the support like you would with with other big yeah. uh, companies like EMC and and um, people like that. So uh, it's a little bit scary in that way. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, time has been. Uh, showing us that it's been it's been worth the risk, and as a small business owner, you got to take risks in those areas because uh, sometimes there's there's no profit, and you got to make those margins wider. You know. Yeah, yeah. Derek and Mike, what about you guys? What do you see as far as uh, storage appliances go? Yeah, I've kind of seen you know back in the day a little bit of both, right? Where it's just local attached, and then if you ran storage, you throw another hard drive in on that on that one small business server doing everything right, which is always terrifying to turn off. Um, and then I've seen some, you know, SMB plus, you know, a little bit more in the medium size have, you know, a little small 
like Adele, Mini San, things like that. But I would say one thing that's kind of becoming more more relevant is with the cloud offerings is looking at actually sending you know some of that data as, at least from a, like a backup perspective to a cloud, right? Where you can kind of offload it, get off the whole tape drive, you know, not sure if you really trust those things anymore nowadays or burning CDs left and right and just dumping it to the cloud and letting letting the storage handle it from that side of the house as well. Yeah, I think this is, um, you know, this is an area where we see things like Steven mentioned, like FreeNAS or OpenFiler or something that's built for redundancies. ZFS-based file systems um, are becoming more and more prevalent and we're starting to see more distributed replicated storage on commodity hardware uh, sort of coming to play, right? Red Hat made an investment a year and a half, two years ago, and something called GlusterFS that basically does the same thing as VMware's vSAN. Uh, VMware's had uh, the VSA product for a while where it's basically a, a virtual machine that's distributed between multiple hosts and it's replicated that way. So there's a lot of ways to get sort of the, the same benefits of centralized storage and a more commercial SAN product. Um, with commodity hardware now than there ever has been in the past. And, and certainly I think it's important, you know, that we don't leave things to chance, right? Do backups, have replicated storage. And, you know, if we really are trying to virtualize our environments, our workloads need to be portable from one host to another because hosts fail. So our, everything can't be on local storage at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like hyperconverged might be a good, uh, a good solution for a lot of small businesses, assuming that the software doesn't cost you a ton of money. Yeah, it, it really is. Like, like EMC's VX rail, right, is built on vSAN. So it does that replication and also has a really cool feature called cloud array that allows you to use uh, public cloud storage like Amazon S3 as sort of a, an offline mode for uh, that replicated storage. And then it basically, you can tell it how much you want to cache of most recently used files. So it'll cache like a hundred, you know, hundred gig or something of most recently used files on the vSAN and then move everything else to public cloud storage. So there's a lot of cost effective ways to leverage it and hyperconverge as well. Very cool. So now we're going to move on to, uh, to the topic of collaboration. As far as synchronous collaboration goes, uh, Mike, what do you typically see in a small business? How do they usually approach the topic of collaboration within their company? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an afterthought most of the time, right? Most smaller shops are really focused on their voice services, and they may have a platform for instant messaging or more real-time communication that is attached to their, you know, their voice solution. Um, I think it it does uh, warrant some thought if people haven't kind of thought through that, right? Is like, what what can I really do to enable? Um, you know, my, my terminals or my computers for my folks to be able to escalate conversations from instant message into voice or video or richer media. Uh, and, and often those, those solutions are disparate today, right? You even see people running, you know, Google Hangouts or some other sort of consumer based product. And I think, you know, we, we don't really stop and think about the, uh, you know, the implications of doing that. All of our IP that we're talking about all day and our business process is all out and, you know, sort of this public cloud that there's no real security around. Google's harvesting the information to sort of present you with ads and other things. And, uh, you know, you should have a commercial instant messaging solution. Or, you know, if you don't want to spend the money, there's, you know, open source Jabber platforms that you can send up a, a server on and, uh, you know, and do it that way internally. Very cool. Steven, what about you? Do you typically see somebody going after like a hosted VoIP solution? I know that's uh, something that you offer. Um, or do you see on-prem systems that, uh, you know, that they manage themselves? 
We see both. If they're on-prem, it's usually because they're analog still. They haven't switched over. They're typically spending a lot of money on analog lines. Um, but the ones that have switched over, Ring Central is a common uh, provider out there, 8x8. Um, there, there's a whole slew of them. Um, so we see that a lot. We also see some people with uh, Google Voice accounts that they've set up to, to be some kind of business phone server. And then, and then like already mentioned, they'll use Google Hangouts or, or whatever's built in. Ring Central, 8x8, all those uh, providers for VoIP also have chat built into some desktop or web-based software. One of the softwares that many small businesses out there can use, and we've been using it now for a few years, is FreePBX. It's great. It's based off of Asterisk, which is a, a very seasoned software for voice over IP services. And FreePBX just throws a pretty GUI on top of it. Um, we host all of our servers with FreePBX and Asterisk and um, sell those services to our customers, but we fully manage them. So they come to us for any needs that they have, uh, adding new extensions, changing their automated attendant, and things like that. But again, it's all on FreePBX. It's all free. It's out there. And then for the um, the uh, the voice over IP trunks themselves, the SIP trunks, we get them through a company called Anvio, and they have a wholesale department, Anvio Direct. You can check them out, anviodirect.com. Uh, but Level 3, um, Time Warner Telecom, all the big ISPs out there, you can buy SIP trunks from yourself and pipe those to your free PBX server, your um, PBX in a flash. There's a whole slew of... Um, of on-premise uh, VoIP solutions out there for small businesses. Very cool. What about uh, what about instant messaging? What do you guys typically see? Um, I know instant messaging. Maybe you don't. It, <clears throat> maybe isn't used very much in small businesses because it's sort of a, a newer platform that uh, uh, that we're using instead of email. But Mike, do you see small businesses going after instant messaging solutions very much? Yeah, so again, I think this is kind of a, you know, the afterthought thing that like, hey, there's probably something happening in your environment, whether you know it or not. Um, I think everybody's accustomed to using it at this point, and it's, it's just sort of a, you know, it's on my computer text messaging uh, for all intents and purposes. So you should, as a small business owner, if you're listening to this or an IT guy that uh, is, you know, running a small IT shop, you know, figure out how to get that delivered in a way that you can secure it and that you can provide a consistent experience for your users rather than leaving them to their own devices to get consumer products out on the internet. Yeah, next thing you know, you have Skype, AOL, Google Hangouts, all the above running on, you know, on your network and not even know it. Right. And it, it's, it's awesome when you get people yelling at like, well, why didn't you post it to, to Google Hangouts, right? Like, why, why didn't you do that? Like, they're getting reprimanded by their boss for not using that consumer product that's not sanctioned and, uh, you know, paid for by the business. It's, it's kind of funny. Steven, do you, uh, do you typically implement a, a uh, official instant messaging solution for customers? Or, um, or is it, are they usually just, you know, like Mike said, free to find their own and use it as they can? Um, like with the firewalls and other systems that are in place when we take over a customer's IT for managed IT services, they, they have something in place. Uh, or, or like already mentioned, they're using a bunch of different services and there's a lot of confusion out there. So what we recommend is they stick with one. Um, a few of our customers, like I mentioned before, too, have hosted uh, VoIP solutions already, and they will all use, for example, Ring Central's instant messaging service for through the desktop app. Um, they'll, oh, that's good to know. They'll use um, Skype for Business, 
or Link or something like that that they've been using for for some time. And then if they go with us for VoIP, we we use chat through FreePBX. Um, there's a desktop client that they can use, actually a web-based client, and they can chat through that. So it really depends on the uh, the customer and what their current setup is. Cool. I didn't even know those existed. What about uh, what about asynchronous? What about email? So, I from my own experience, I've seen quite a few different solutions out there. Some customers, especially in the past, they would you know if they ran a small business server, they'd run Exchange on it and they'd run their own email system. But I see more and more almost the first solution that goes up into the cloud is email. I see quite a few customers on Gmail, but. Um, Stephen, what do you typically see out there for email solutions for small shops? Yeah, we see a lot of businesses with uh, a Google business account. Um, so they're using Google's you know, Gmail services, but they, they mask it with their domain name and everything. And they have, they have Google apps that they can log into and do everything from uh, emailing and, and uh, collaboration for documents and things like that. And then we have some customers that, like you said, they have their Exchange server running on their Microsoft small business server along with, you know, five or six other roles that, you know, shouldn't all be on the same server, but they are. And then a few of our bigger customers that have dedicated exchange servers with a, with a redundant DAG set up. Derek, what about you? Yeah, it's uh, email is definitely an interesting one, right? I would say this one kind of touches on SMB or even enterprise. Um, It's definitely a great candidate to move towards the cloud, right? So in an SMB shop, uh, everything I've seen has been all, you know, exchange based, right? Pretty much nothing else but that. So, um, pushing that towards Office 365. And like Steven said, I would say the Google Apps is another prime one, um, where they kind of mask everything for you, but it gives you some powerful backend. So those two, I would say are the biggest candidates. You know, nobody really runs, you know, I can't even think of something else right now. Like those are the two players that always seem to come to mind on the email front. Uh, definitely. Mike, go ahead. So I was just going to add that uh, I've seen, you know, a number of small shops that I've worked with before sort of have their email on some, you know, subpar shared web hosting provider that is running their website, right? And I've got Pop Pop 3 or IMAP services from them. And I'm not really sure where that stuff is at and, uh, you know, if it's getting backed up, all of those things. And they don't have any calendaring. They don't have any other, you know, functions that we typically get from Exchange or whatever mail platform we're using, whether that's Google or, or whatever it may be. Um, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to sort of have a call to action to say, like, if you're if you're one of those folks that falls into that bucket, you're missing out on so much from an experience standpoint. Look at Google or look at Office 365. It's really cost effective at this point, And, you know, it, it just makes a lot of sense. This is 2016 after all. We're not, we're not getting stuck in a time warp here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with Mike. Uh, there's there's a lot of solutions out there for email. There there are some, you know, a lot of times whoever's hosting your website, if that's sort of all they do, uh, email is kind of going to be a second, you know, it's just a second class product for them. You know, a lot of a lot of times the best solutions are things like uh, you know hosting your own exchange, going with somebody who who hosts exchange for you. You know, as long as it is some kind of exchange backend, because that gives you all of the features that you would be used to, uh, or or the big namers like Gmail, um, micro, you know, Office three sixty five, things like that. Those seem to be the best uh, uh, options as far as if somebody's looking to redesign their email solution. So the last point up here is security. So Derek, this is a big topic, and uh, and I know you're very much you have you have a strong security background. What do you think 
is uh, best products and best ways to go for network security in a small business? So I would say it's not so much about products as much as it is about having a policy, right? So number one, don't write your passwords on your computer monitor and stick it to the, you know, with a post-it note. Um, things like that, I think, that are common sense to a lot of us are not common sense to people that work in some places that use a computer every day, right? So I would say generally speaking, you you can get a lot of bang for your buck by just making sure that people understand the concepts of, Hey, don't click certain links in emails if it looks suspicious. You know, having a basic email filtering. Um, another big one I would say is, you know, if you're like the sole IT guy for a company, um, how are you remote accessing other computers, right? I mean, I've seen times where someone just runs VNC on like every single computer with, you know, password one, two, three. They can log in remotely and guess what? So can everybody else, right? So <laughs> kind of having just some common sense about things like that, I think will go a long way. Versus saying, okay, you know, obviously, you know, firewalls are important, but I would say it's more so about how you configure those things and like what you actually have. Cause there's thousands of options that you can run through from a security portfolio on product and things like that and, and various software. So again, common sense, small business, you know, a lot of good information out there. I, I know Kearns, you mentioned Packet Pushers did a great show on, on security. So, you know, definitely check that out and get to give some more detail on that one. Yeah, definitely. Seems like the lowest hanging fruit from what I've seen, uh, and it's it's pretty much exactly what you said, Derek, is user training. Uh, your weakest link a lot of times in these small businesses is, you know, the receptionist sitting up at the front with nothing to do, you know, just clicking on every link that anybody sends her and um, doing some kind of decent, even if it's just from you as the IT staff, uh, doing that, you know, sort of informal training of of teaching somebody the common sense of okay you don't click a link out of an email that uh, from somebody you don't know or things like that you know what to look for as far as uh phishing scams and things like that that might in my opinion that seems to be a lot of times the lowest hanging fruit for beefing up your security uh in a small shop and yeah derek you're right um packet pusher show 2060 with jay swan he's a uh, he's an expert in this topic and i definitely recommend that's one of my favorite shows that i've heard from them and uh i definitely recommend that for anybody looking for security options to uh um to harden their security in a small business let's go around the table and uh plug our social media and where you can find us steven where can people find you on the internet at our website, verticalcomputers.com. Uh, check out our contact form and and, uh, and shoot me an email. Derek, how about you? Sure. Usually over at uh, Packet Pushers, LinkedIn, and then sometimes Twitter. Mike? The usual places, Twitter and uh, my blog that's never updated at Aussie.net. And uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter once in a while uh, at Packetsar or blog.packetsar.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and thank you, Stephen and Derek and Mike, for all the tips on small shop design. Have a good one. Oh, I'll send it I'm to sure you after the show. Awesome, it's, it's, <laughs> you'll appreciate it. They effectively pushed out a config change to, retr- to yeah, retract one the of rest, their IP right? blocks out of BGP. Yeah, took them everything and down. it like it like failed some consistency check in their configuration management software. That rather than like just not making the change, the configuration just software hit a out, bug right? and pulled all IP blocks that they were advertising. That's awesome. And then it went through and did it from every single site. So it was like a 100% outage for all of their locations around the world. You don't need for outing. Awesome. Big win for automation, right? That's right.